Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. In uh, May of 2019, Beth and I had been in Ligonier for about a year. And um, that's the month of the year that we closed on our house here in town. And that was a, a really joyful time. Many of you um, helped us move, helped us paint, uh, helped us get the house cleaned and ready. And uh, uh, this May will be our fourth anniversary of living in the house, so a four-year anniversary of moving in. And uh, I was reflecting with Beth the other day that, uh, uh, in general, we've moved enough in our first 10 years of marriage or so that... Uh, when we hit next May, we will have lived in this one house longer than we've lived uh, anywhere else in our married life together. Uh, time flies when we're having fun. It's been a great house. Uh, the, the, our family has doubled in size since we bought it, and uh, it's, it's a joy. And, uh, uh, in that season, as we're, as we're looking to move into the house, one of my favorite memories was uh, closing day. Uh, closing day, because... We bought the house from a man named uh, Dr. Mirslav Zeleznik. And uh, many of you uh, may know Dr. Zeleznik. He had a family practice that we ran out of the house for a number of years. And Dr. Stepanik, uh, as well, was a um, uh, general practitioner operating out of the house. In fact, for the first like three years, we'd get knocks on the door saying, Hey, I need to see Dr. Stepanik. Is she here today? And we said, um, Ship sailed, my friend. Um, it's, it's, uh, it was a fun time. But uh, on the closing day, the day we closed, we, we met, we signed all the paperwork, and they got a whole lot of money, and we got a house to live in, and it was very good and joyful. Uh, he invited us to lunch out afterwards to celebrate, and we went out to that lunch, and uh, we toasted to each other's house, health. We were grateful, and they shared with us you know, how joyed they were that it would be a young family, new to town, a pastor, in fact, buying their uh, house, and we were just so happy with uh, everything. We were having a good time. There may have been a small bottle of whiskey involved, um, and uh, as the waitress left us alone, we, we leaned over the table and told them very sneakily, we said, hey, you, I know you're really grateful, I know you want to start, you're, you're hoping we raise our family here, we just want to let you know, you know, our, our first is due in November, we're very excited, and they just were so overjoyed, they, they toasted to the health of the baby and the mother, and they insisted they pick up the tab uh, as a gift for the baby to come, it was a fond memory, that lunch, and um, there are plenty of other celebrations that are like that in our lives, right? You close the big deal, um, you, you, you put the contract down on paper, everybody wins, and you just want to party, you want to have a good time, right? Maybe your house wasn't quite that way when you bought your house, maybe Beth and I are just um, surrounded by blessedness, I guess, but you know, people um, get a new car, and what happens? Everybody comes out and it looks at the car, and they admire the car, and they, they celebrate, and you take it for a drive, and you let your friends sit in it while you drive, right? That's part of the fun of getting a new car. Or um, maybe you sell a business, and you've done such a good job, and you've 
sell the business and you've got a lot of money now. And there's something to, there's a celebration that comes with, with that. Maybe you go on a trip with your spouse or maybe you throw a party. Um, maybe you um, get married, right? Because uh, what is marriage? Marriage is a vow. It's a contract of love. And so you sign the contract and you go to the ceremony and what's the first thing you do afterward? You throw a massive party to celebrate. Uh, some of you may know that um, the biggest party on earth is probably uh, Oktoberfest in Munich, Germany. And Oktoberfest, the original Oktoberfest, was the wedding of the crown prince, King Ludwig I. Well, he wasn't king yet, he was the crown prince. And he married his beloved Teresa, and they said, we don't want this to be just a royal affair, we want the whole kingdom to party. And so they, they had horse racing, and they had lots of beer and dancing, and it was this great festival. And they said, a year later, on their anniversary, they said, hey, that was such a great party, let's do it again. And it's been going on for over 200 years, the celebration of the covenant between uh, the king and his queen. Um, and so in our reading today, um, there is a, a finalizing of a covenant between God and his people. And there's a party. And that's the essence of what's happening today in our reading from the book of Exodus, right? That's what we're going to talk about. I want you to have this image of a party, that the contract has been signed, the deal is in, everything's been written down, and now we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a feast together. That's what's happening in our reading today. Um, We've turned a corner in our sermon series, haven't we? Um, We're studying life after the Exodus, and we've been following Israel after their escape from Egypt and slavery at God's, uh, uh, at God's doing. And we've been following them in their life as the newly freed people. And it took them a while. They struggled at first. They're learning how to trust God with everything from their food to their water uh, to uh, their safety. But God has brought them over about a season of three months to the base of Mount Sinai. And God has said, hey, um, I'm going to make a contract with you. I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my special people, and that will continue to be as long as you follow this set of rules. And so uh, keen eyes will observe, that's what we talked about last week, that God introduced this idea of a covenant, of a contract with Israel. That was Exodus chapter 19, and today we're in Exodus chapter 24. Uh, To fill in the gap for you, uh, so you know what's happening, is over those last four chapters or so, five chapters, God has begun to give Israel a list of behaviors and moral virtues and ways of structuring their society and rules for life um, so that Israel will be independent and unique and set apart from the rest of the world. And so you get laws, for example, on how to rightfully and respectfully treat your servants and how to rightfully and respectfully uh, treat uh, foreigners. Uh, God gives specific punishments. He says, here's the offense, here's the punishment for the offense. God gives really weird rules, like um, rules that are odd to us, like don't uh, boil a goat in the milk of its mother. Um, Come to find out that was um, an ancient pagan Canaanite thing. That was like a magic thing that they did in their magic books. And God was like, we're going to have none of that. Uh, And so God gives this list of rules that tells you how to act how to litigate what happens when your cow gets out and eats your neighbor's rutabagas and there's damage done to their crops and um, how to, to be a unique people so that they'll be set apart and different 
from the rest of the world, and the rest of the world will see this unique people and become curious and interested to know about their God. That's what God does in the last four to five chapters. And God says, most importantly, in the midst of this, that if you can abide by all these rules, Israel, that I'm going to give you, um, then I will be your God, you will be my people, and you will be blessed beyond measure. That's the contract. That is the contract. And so as we're looking at, at the, the, the section of Scripture, God lays out a bunch of rules to follow, rules that you and I may find a little archaic. And, you know, it says something that I didn't make us go through all four chapters of the rules here in church today. But uh, as these rules are coming out, um, God gets to the point where he says, okay, let's meet and sign the deal. And so what does our reading tell us? Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So they're not entering into this contract blindly. They hear everything. Moses communicates all of the rules. He communicates the Ten Commandments. He communicates on how to treat foreigners and slaves and, and everything that happens in the last four chapters. And Israel says, yes, we assent. We agree. We are not being forced to do this uh, beyond our own uh, consent. And so Moses writes it all down. They have a copy of it in a book. Probably a scroll is more accurate to say, but they wrote it down in a book. And then um, Israel, uh, they all hear it. They all agree again. And then um, the people do this remarkable thing. They offer a sacrifice. He, Moses, rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to the, of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins and half the blood and threw it against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I am thankful that when we closed on our house, we didn't have anybody flicking blood at us. <laughs> that was a little much. But in the ancient world, in the ancient world, this was how you signed the deal. There was an animal sacrifice involved. There was blood involved. And what happened is both parties would come together and they'd say, um, here is an ox, we're going to sacrifice the ox and we're going to put the, the, the blood on us somehow. And they would say, if I break the rules of this covenant, the rules of this contract, may I be like the animal that I just slaughtered. May I be as dead and as burned and as cooked as the animal that I have brought to this deal. Every contract was a little different, but they all came together and blood was a part of it. Um, it's sort of like the old nursery rhyme. I've, I've shared this illustration before, but I think it's so helpful, right? Uh, remember back on the schoolyard when you wanted to promise your buddies something? Uh, and you'd say what? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, which is really grotesque when you think about it. Uh, and yet, that's sort of a schoolyard impulse of the same vein. Um, that in the same way, we're like, if I break my promise... I hope to die, and I hope to do severe damage to my corneas. Um, the same way that we have that, we have the people of Israel saying to God in the Old Testament, if we don't obey this and hold up our end of this bargain, uh, may I be as the slaughtered animal on the altar. So in some sense, 
what we have in our reading today is a signed contract, a fulfilled bargain, where Israel and God shake hands and say, yes, we will be your people and we will be obedient, God. And God says, if you do that, I'm going to bless the heck out of you. In fact, God says in this interim period, I've got the perfect place for you guys to call home. I have this place up in the land of Canaan. It's a land of milk and honey. And um, if you can be my people, I'm going to take you up there and that will be your home. You don't have to live a nomadic lifestyle forever. So that's the deal. That's the contract. And it has been signed and the people have assented. And so what happens next? They party. They celebrate. And they do it with God himself. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Um, Maybe you didn't have lunch with, you know, uh, the person who you sold your first uh, house with or who bought your first house. You didn't have lunch with the salesman that, you know, bought you your car or got you your car. But um, this is reason to celebrate. God and Israel, they're now together in a contractual relationship. And they're both excited. They're both happy. Israel, given the context, may be a little terrified. Um, And yet... Israel and God are now linked. And this special relationship is going to change the world for thousands of years to come. It impacts you, it impacts me, it impacts the entire world to this day. Um, That Israel shakes God's hand metaphorically and says, yes, we will be your people. We will keep your commands. A couple of high notes on this this, uh, happy occasion in Israel's history. First, I want to say a word about visibility. Uh, I want to observe something about our text uh, that's um, about visibility. Because, you know, in some religions you have sort of this main prophet person. And um, they have a relationship with God and they just come and tell everybody else about it. But there's this barrier in between, right? I think of like Joseph Smith of the Mormon religion, right? There's the famous gold plates. And people kept asking him, where are the gold plates? And he's like, well, I saw the gold plates. And then eventually three other people came along and they were like, well, we saw the gold plates too. But these gold plates were apparently a special revelation from God about how to live life. And then he had them, but nobody else could see them, right? So there's this barrier, right? Joseph Smith is sort of a prophet figure and um, there's a barrier and everyone, you just kind of have to trust and take Joseph Smith at his word. Um, I, I recommend you don't, but that's what the Mormon faith teaches. And then even in Islam, right, um, you have Muhammad and, and the whole religion sort of gets started when Muhammad is by himself in a cave and he, get, he meets with the angel Gabriel. And then he comes and tells everyone about it. Um, well, the problem is, it's like, well, who else was there other than Muhammad to know if this was actually true? And uh, the answer is, well, we just don't know. Um, but Christianity has always operated on a different level. Um, there's never been this sort of mystery figure that you just have to trust, right? Because it's very tempting as you're reading here to be like, well, what if Moses was just making it all up? What if Moses is just going up on the mountain by himself and coming down and kind of making it up as he goes along? And um, the Bible doesn't give us that interpretation of things. The Bible says, look, 70 elders plus uh, uh, some others, they all went up on the mountain 
And they had lunch with God to celebrate the covenant. Um, that this isn't just Moses sitting there um, playing this dramatic prophet figure. God opens himself and makes himself available to all of these people. To say nothing of all the other great miracles that Israel has witnessed, like the parting of the Red Sea uh, or the great plagues. This was only four months removed from that whole scenario. So um, this is not just true of, of Judaism. It's true of Christianity too. That when Jesus rose from the dead, it's not as if he appeared to a couple of people and we just um, take their word for it. Um, in his letter to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on at length and says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead bodily, if we didn't see him backed up and walking around, um, then our whole religion is bunk. Just don't even follow it. But go, you can find people who saw and witnessed the words in Jesus. At one point, Paul says, Jesus appeared to like 500 people at the same time. Go find these people. Talk to them about it. Jesus may have ascended to heaven, but we're not a mystery religion. Like, people saw Jesus rise from the dead. Lots of them did. And it is important, uh, I think, to our faith that we say, we're not into the whole uh, mysterious prophet scene. Um, God is open and willing to work. He reveals himself to everyday people. There's no hierarchy involved here. Um, that our God loves everyone. And yeah, there's some rules in place about how to approach God. Um, but at the same time, the flip side to that is, is God wants a relationship with you in the singular. And you are just as open to have access to God as Moses, as any prophet of the Old Testament, and as any apostle of the New Testament. Um, and so there's a visibility thing here I think is very important. This is not just Moses behind the scenes making things up. People got to see God. They probably kept their heads bowed, which is why they have some, you know, visions of the streets in front of God with the sapphire. They may not have made eye contact with him um, or, or, or been that sort of disrespectful. But there are at least 70 people who went home that night and said, so I had lunch with God today. <laughs> what a remarkable story that we have in Israel's history. So that's the first thing I want to say a word about visibility. Second thing I want to say a word about involvement. Um, because uh, God has not sort of finished giving the rules. Um, God is going to work with Israel and continue to help them become the people he wants them to be. And so in the next chapters, we're going to have another skip in the next couple of weeks here to Exodus 32. That's our next reading. And in those chapters, God gets involved and says, listen, you're my special people. I'm going to tell you about all the things you need to worship me in church, Old Testament church well. I'm going to tell you how to build some candle stands. I'm going to tell you how to build an altar. I'm going to tell you how to build this box that you're going to keep all the important things in. I'm going to tell you how to build um, a, a thing to burn incense on. And I'm even going to tell you, God says, who I want you to build, who I want to build these things. Because you got some great craftsmen in your, in your nation, and uh, I want the best. And so what ends up happening is God continues to be involved. This is not sort of the thing where you're a landlord and a, you're, a, you're a lessee, right? You've got a lease, you're renting a place, and then there's the landlord, and you sign the documents day one, and you don't see each other again. God is continuing to be involved with the people of Israel. God is active and involved, and there's more to come. Uh, but for now, the basics are in writing and signed on the dotted line. Finally, I want to say a word um, about our own meal with God, uh, which is communion. I want to say a word about communion. I think this text has something to say about communion. 
Uh, you might be thinking to yourself, gee, Pastor Brian, your lunch with Dr. Lesnick sounds great, but that was not my experience. Uh, I just took the keys, went home, and took a nap. So fair enough. Or maybe you're saying, Pastor Brian, I'm single. I haven't had a wedding reception. Uh, this is a little far for me to understand uh, that every great contract signing comes with a great party. It's like, fair enough. Not all my illustrations hit everybody all the time, right? Um, but you can't think that way about your relationship with God. Uh, because, and I say this to you now, part of what we do every week with communion, with the bread and the wine, is we get together and give thanks to God for our contract with him. And that's weird to think about, right? But that you and I have a contract with God, and yet that's the language of the New Testament. Every time you ever hear about um, the new covenant, that's a new contract. The new contract. Um, what the New Testament tells us is that um, that thousand years or so after the events that we read today, um, Jesus of Nazareth dies and rises again. And the, the people who are making sense of that, the people who God has chose to lead the early church, they start to say things like, um, you, there's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. There's a covenant where you can try hard and do this work and obey the law, and that will get you a relationship with God. Or you can go this opposite direction, look at the law and say, wow, I don't measure up to it. These rules, God, that you've given are beyond me. And so you repent and approach God with a humble heart and an I'm sorry. And because of what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection, that's a way of getting into relationship with God too. And so the New Testament goes out of its way to say, yeah, you've got a new contract, a new covenant. And um, it's different. But it's still a contract. It's still something that God has committed himself to. And instead of the people of Israel offering the sacrifice of a, of a number of oxen and having lunch that way um, with God to sign that contract, the sacrifice that commits us, or I should say commits God to us, is Jesus' death and resurrection. That, that is the event in which God solidifies a new contract with us. And that new contract says, um, all of your sins are forgiven. You are my people. Um, that I'm going to come back and judge and fix this world and set all wrongs right. And there will be a place for you in heaven and a resurrection from the dead. That is what's promised to us. We are not promised a land in Canaan. We are not promised any sort of earthly blessings. Instead, we are promised eternal blessings, a resurrection, forgiveness, and a place in the world to come. It's a new covenant. And so every week, we get together and we have a little feast. Um, every week, we come together with bread and wine, as Jesus instructed to do. And every week, we say, thank you for this new covenant. Thank you that you signed this contract for us. Thank you um, for giving us this gift of grace. And thank you for offering the blood of Jesus Christ as the signatory and the seal that we didn't have to come up with the blood on our own. That is what we do every week when we come to communion. We meet with God and we have a meal and we say thank you, which is exactly what happened today in our reading in Exodus. They met with God, they said thank you and had a meal. So you, my friends, have a contract with God, this new 
covenant. And I think that's the takeaway for today. That as you see Israel entering into a contract with God in the Old Testament, you get to be reminded of the contract that you have with God through Jesus' death and resurrection. That all of the things God promises, the forgiveness of sins, the life to come, the places in his eternal kingdom, those things are all for you. And Jesus himself has put together everything needed for that contract to be signed on the bottom line. Bottom line. And all you need is to believe that it's true. All you need to do is believe that it is true. And our contract with God, friends, is so important. We meet with him every week at church to remember Jesus' death and resurrection with our meal. We do what the elders in our reading do today. We celebrate our contract with God. We just do it every week because it's just that special and important to us. Um, The God who contracts with us promises one day all things will come together and we too will join him as Revelation tells us on the sapphire paved streets of heaven. And then, then we will party and celebrate like no other party in history. And so we have our little feast today in anticipation for the big feast to come. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in green, broke with the keys, fell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ lay death in his grave. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.